Well, Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second he was actually perched in his cage, and the next second he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problem began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> she removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. And the phone rang, and she turned to pick it up, and before she could say hello, swoop, Chippy got sucked in. The bird's owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened the bag. There was Chippy, still alive, but stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, then put down the phone, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Then, realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted Chippy, pet with a hot ear. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days later, a reporter who had initially written the event contacted Chippy's owner and asked how Chippy was. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and he stares. Being sucked in, washed up, and blown over will steal the song from the stoutest of heart. The truth is, brothers and sisters, there are times when it feels like we've been sucked in, washed up, and blown over. At such, it's at such times we lose the desire to do what we were created for. Just like Chippy, the parakeet, who was so stunned by what happened to him, he no longer sang, we who claim Christ can become so confused and distracted and overwhelmed by things that happen to us in life that we no longer live for the one who saved our souls and follow the one who has absolute authority over our lives. This is the context into which James wrote his letter in the New Testament that we're going to be looking at today or for over the next three months. His primary focus throughout the five chapters of this letter is that way we might know a living faith by actually obeying and joyfully sacrificing and humbly living out our faith in Jesus Christ. Rather than knowing a dead faith which professes faith in Jesus but whose life reflects no obedience, no joy, no sacrifice, or no humbleness in their faith in Christ. Or in other words, in our vernacular, our walk should match our talk. And that's James' message to us. James says this in James 1.22, and he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then he reveals how that creates a dead faith in James 2.17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, he says. It is generally agreed upon both by tradition and modern scholarship, that the James who wrote this letter was the second son of Mary, which would make him the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, who was the first son of Joseph and Mary. The book of Acts tells us that James exercised great influence among the Jewish believers in his day. And even though he's not one of the original 12 apostles, in Galatians 1.19, Paul calls him an apostle. 
writers of the day in tradition tells us that he was known as James the Just because of his humble, righteous character. And the early church fathers called him Old Camel Knees because he had an incredible prayer life. Both the inward and outward life of James reflected a living faith in Christ. And so it's no surprise that God sovereignly used James to write a letter that would become a book in our Bible talking about what true living faith truly is. James uses the word faith 15 times in his five chapters. And it appropriately follows the book of Hebrews where the author uses the term faith 34 times in those 13 chapters. So I think God's trying to get our attention when he's talking about faith. Now the word faith is the word pistis in the, word, in the Greek, which sometimes is translated to, to mean believe, but neither of those words really fleshes out the depth of the richness of the original meaning of the word. Pistis goes beyond human faith and belief because it involves a personal revelation of Jesus Christ through God, through the inworking of God's spirit in the human heart that not only persuades but also convicts and yields to God in utter dependence and trusts God not only for salvation but also for the constancy and growth and assurance of faith throughout all of our lives. Faith, or pistis, is always God's work. When that word is used, it's not our faith, it's the gift of faith we've forgotten, forgotten from God. Our faith, our believing faith, becomes living faith when we become so transformed by the grace of God that we yield our hearts to God and then fully commit ourselves to God. This word faith and trust is not just about believing, it's about throwing your whole body, mind, and soul into trusting God for everything in every way. James pressed this foundational concept of living faith in Christ into the lives of a people who were struggling in their church. They were struggling with social conflict between the rich and the poor and spiritual conflict between differing factions within the church. And James rebuked his readers for their worldliness and challenged them to humbly seek God's divine wisdom and they could only work out these problems, he would tell us, when they get their hearts right with God. James exhorted them to pursue a living faith in Christ because they were lacking spiritual maturity. The reality of the dynamics of our faith tell us that maturity is not a natural consequence of living a long time or having faith for a long time. But rather, God's word defines spiritual maturity in terms of brokenness, in terms of surrender and obedience and sacrifice and commitment and love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Those are the words that God says make us spiritually mature. One prominent pastor recently said, spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in churches today. Too many churches, he says, are playpens for baby Christians instead of workshops for mature Christians. The members are not grown up enough to eat the solid spiritual food, so they keep being maintained on milk. God, he writes, is looking for mature men and women to carry on his great enterprise of the gospel of redemption, but often finding only children who have not yet even learned 
to get along with one another. And so may James teach us and grow us up into mature Christians. Amen? Now, in one sense, this book of James belongs in the wisdom literature uh, of the Bible. This sort of literature we see in the writings of the Old Testament, but this is the only book in the New Testament that we could call wisdom literature. Now, wisdom literature is characterized by general instructions how to be successful in skillful living, and it complements uh, the perplexities of the human existence, asks hard questions like, why are we here, and what are things for, and how can we do things uh, What's interesting is this particular book by Martin Luther saw as, a, uh, he called it the, the book of straw. It was weighty, or excuse me, it was too light. It wasn't weighty enough theologically. But he never did dismiss it for its spiritual pragmatism. The book of James is an intensely practical book, intensely practical. It rebukes pretense and hypocrisy. It insists on conduct that conforms to creed, and it tells us that our profession must also be matched by our performance. For us Christians, the question is for us, what good is truth if we don't live it out? That's the answer we need to have today. With its four, 54 imperatives or commands, within these five chapters, there are 54 commands in these words. The book of James, from beginning to end, is a passionate, urgent demand that we live out the reality of our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, he writes. James opens his letter simply by first just stating his name. And then, despite being Jesus' brother, James appeals to his authority to write this letter by the fact that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word servant here literally means slave or bond slave. So here is where we see the depth of James' spiritual character in that the only claim he made for himself was that he was owned by God. He didn't say, I'm Jesus' brother, that's why I'm writing this. He said, I'm a slave of God. I'm owned by God. That's why I'm able to write this letter. Reflecting Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 6.20, that you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. So glorify God, Paul writes. James addresses this letter to the 12 tribes of dispersion. Now, the 12 tribes is a synonym for the nation of Israel, the people of God, the Jews. And the dispersion is a technical term used for the Jews who were scattered over the Gentile world outside of Palestine. And though James was principally writing to Jewish Christians, he most likely also meant it to be read in a wider scale. Um, though his letter was intended for the Messianic Jews, so to speak, it would receive wide circulation in the early synagogue, which was the center of the Jewish community. Many Jewish believers who believed in Jesus were still going to the synagogue, and this letter would have influence then within the Jewish community and the Gentiles also who would have connections with that community. What's interesting is this is how our most sovereign God providentially spread the gospel in the days that James lived in. God 
purposely scattered the Jews to prepare the culture and then purposely sent out the Messianic Jews to scatter the seeds of the gospel. God does the same today. He will scatter us in different ways. I'm a seed from the middle part of the United States. There's a lot of you that have your beginnings not here at all from different parts of the world. God often does this so that we can scatter the seeds of the gospel. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So we must take care when we read this, brothers and sisters, not to fall into the habit of gathering into comfortable, holy huddles in the church. But rather, we are to be a people who are dispersing ourselves in different ways to plant the seeds of the gospel throughout the world. Amen? And when we do, Jesus tells us, when we do, Jesus said, I will build my church. and The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. James then writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James is telling us here that when we join our Lord Jesus on the front lines of the battle for the souls of men and women, the reality of the depth of our living of our faith will put us to test with trials of various kinds. This would have been a very strange message to the Jewish Christians because as the Jews, they would have been inclined to expect God would bless them in response to living for God, based on the promises, covenant promises of Deuteronomy 28 to 31. We read of the same mindset in the book of Job, as Job is, remember, he's, he's lost everything, his health is gone, and his friends are there telling him that you must have done something that would, from, that would cause God to punish you. It must be kind of some kind of sin in your life. But we know on this side, as we read it, what was happening with Job. He was living a life for God, a devout life for God, and that's why God allowed those things to happen to him. The truth be told, I, I still know a lot of Christians who when bad things happen to them, right away say, I must have done something wrong or somebody must have done something wrong, rather than God blessed me with this in order to build up my character and get me closer to him. God's word tells us that God will providentially send and allow various trials of different kinds to come into our lives to test our faith and to build up our faith. Jesus spoke of this in John 15 when he said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He prunes us that we might bear more fruit. This is what happens in the life of a born-again believer of Jesus Christ. Notice James does, tells us that this is the way it is. He does not say, count it all joy if you meet various trials. He says, when you meet various trials. In 1 Peter 4.12, we read the same thing. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you, but rejoice, there it is again, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Notice James tells us to count it all joy that the, the trials and struggles and adversities that come into our life are there, and there will be various kinds, he said. Now, what kinds? So I would say all kinds, spiritual, emotional, physical, relational, financial, intellectual, any kind of trial that there could be, God could very clearly put into our lives. How many amens do I hear for that? Well, we should say amen because God's using these things. He sent them intentionally to build our faith, test our faith. He said, know that the testing of your faith produces, James says, steadfastness. Now, the original Greek word, translated in English word steadfastness, the original word means cheerful, hopeful, patient endurance. Now, we see this fleshed out in Colossians 1 by Paul, when he exhorted us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strength with all power according to your glorious might. Why? For all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So trials and struggles and Adversities are the stress test that push us up to and beyond our limits so that we might recognize our dependence upon God. The truth is that we, brothers and sisters, we have nothing to offer God. Nothing to, God doesn't need us. We have nothing to offer him. But we need everything from him. Whenever we think we are sufficient in ourselves, we deceive ourselves. God brings, sends, allows trials, struggles, and adversities into our lives to show us our need for God, so then we would humbly and desperately again look back to God for his presence and his help and his hope. You see, the Christian life is the process of recognizing our deficiencies and then seeking God's mercy and grace and love and hope and restoration process of building up our faith into a living faith, which is the meaning of sanctification, is always, on, always ongoing in our lives. It's never finished as long as we're here. But in the moments when we start becoming more complete, know at that moment you will lack nothing, it says here. Because God has amply provided for every need. To resist and reject trials, struggles, and adversities is to resist and reject the hand of God in your life that is perfecting his work inside of us. We should rejoice over his perfecting work in us. Amen? But it's not going to be easy. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, James writes, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith without, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So now James tells us about the divine resources that God has made available to us to help us when we're going through times of trial, struggle, and adversities that are meant to sanctify us into a living faith. 
And the first resource he says we have here is to ask God for wisdom. Now, the Bible teaches us that God is the source of all wisdom. And that's a wisdom that it's much more than just knowledge and intelligence. It's a practical, divine discernment that is given to us by the Spirit of God, which helps us to make decisions, wise decisions, in the light of God's will and of God's work in difficult circumstances. We as Christians need God's wisdom so we might see our trials as God sees our trials, that there's purpose behind them. And, and the wisdom we need is not wisdom we can acquire from reading or from teachers. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it can only be learned, wisdom only can be learned when we are on our knees in prayer. The second assurance James speaks of is that we're to ask in faith, he says. Now, faith is the essential condition of prayer, so we must pray with a complete trust in God that a request will be granted according to his will. So to ask in faith means to trust God's help and have a full and complete confidence that he will and can deal with whatever trial, struggle, or adversity we are in the midst of. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So when we ask in faith, when we approach God with assurance in his character and who he is, not doubting his ability or his willingness to grant us exactly what we need according to his will for his purpose at that moment. God will give when we humbly ask in faith. James also warns us about being double-minded in our faith. His point here is that it's just not enough to ask in faith for wisdom, but we also must be willing to validate our faith by obeying God in the things that he tells us. We can't just pray for wisdom and then just live out of God's will. That's double-mindedness. If we're going to pray into God's will, then we need to live in God's will at the same moment. Then we have a stability to us, it says. James gives us an illustration here, which we would understand here close to the ocean when it talks about people who believe but don't obey are people who's tossed about by the wind and the sea and the waves. So the essence of doubting is can be seen, I guess, in a picture of someone who's straddling a fence. This person is drawn in two different directions, but at the same time is unstable in every direction. Since the rule of their heart is divided, it will affect every part of that person's life, conduct, thought, or saying. So doubt and indecision lead to an indecisive walk with God, which leads to a lack of commitment which then leads to a dead faith, which we've already seen in the Bible. James then writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, in the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So now here James moves from his general discussion about trials, 
struggles and adversities. And he now speaks to us of the two most common examples of testing in our faith that, that we know and that they knew back then. And that's the test of poverty and the test of prosperity. The reality is both rich and poor Christians face trials, struggles, and adversities. Amen? The rich share just as much problems as the poor have. The word lowly here, the word lowly suggests one who is poor and oppressed and has a seemingly unimportant earthly status. And as I researched the word, I kind of just thought back, Nancy and I grew up in homes that are kind of reflective of this kind of thing. Um, when money is scarce, I'll put it this way, really scarce, there's a temptation to brood and resent and envy those who have. That's just, this is what we're talking about. We've been there. When money is scarce, that's what happens. Early church records, though, show that many of the members of the early church were members from a low economic part of society, very poor people. Every church record in those days showed this. But what happened is Jesus became their hope in their dismal situation because when one becomes a Christian, we become an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. And as new creatures in Christ, we become bearers of the divine image of God, partakers of the divine nature of God with inexhaustible treasures available to us. Though we may possess little or nothing on earth regarding honor or treasures, we have a high position with God. and We have riches of glory that cannot be compared to any treasure on earth. James tells us those who are poor will not be depressed when they come to Christ because they will see their poverty as an opportunity to prove the faithfulness of God in their lives. James then speaks of the rich who need to realize that their condition is one of humiliation instead of exaltation like the lowly because, he says, the rich will someday fade away like a flower in the grass and so will their wealth and their social prominence. The rich's humiliation is the fading away of their earthly exaltation because the rich do not depend upon God for the basic necessities of life. They take them for granted. Money can create real problems into finding spiritual maturity. Those who are wealthy are not pressed to seek the daily bread from God and therefore are constantly reminded to thank him also. Physical life can be pleasant, and enjoyment can be found in worldly things that wealth provides instead of the joy of the Lord sometimes. The test of prosperity is that riches can make a person significant and accepted in the world's eyes, which would create them a temptation to be satisfied with the acceptance of the world and not be moved to find acceptance before God in Jesus Christ. James reminds us that the rich, that the life is brief and uncertain and encourages them to maintain a humble attitude in spite of their plenty. The rich are not to delight in worldly wealth or possessions, but to rejoice in the opportunity to prove their inferiority to the riches of Christ. But whatever earthly circumstances, whether rich or poor, 
It's all temporary, brothers and sisters. Everything's temporary. Poverty is temporary. Riches are temporary. And we are all called to live for what is eternal. Amen? Amen. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, James writes, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This verse is James' encouraging conclusion to his instruction that began back at verse 2 regarding the trials and struggles and adversities we face in pursuing a living faith in Christ. Now, James closes this section of teaching uh, on testing with a promise that when we do go through trials and struggles and adversities, God will reward those who are faithful in their pursuit of a living faith in Jesus. He tells us, first of all, that God blesses those who remain steadfast under trial. And we've already heard that that blessing is the crown of life, but there's also a blessing God word, God's word talks about, that in the midst of going through trials and struggles and adversities, there is a blessing of God's power and of God's presence and of God's preeminence because Jesus is with us through the Holy Spirit in all of those things. Amen? That's a reward. I mean, that's not in heaven, but that's a reward here. And we need to know that blessing because trials will come to us if we pursue a living faith in Christ. And the mere experience of that trial will not necessarily bring a blessedness into our hearts and lives. The reality is sometimes we come out of difficulties and trials and struggles and adversities, not softened or tempered, but hard and brittle. It's hard to see that testing at times. It's hard to see those difficulties as a blessing from God. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial could make us look like one of those gnarled, twisted trees along the shores of Euclid where the branches are blown off into one direction. You've seen those bent all over, kind of like Medusa's hair. <laughs> you, can, you can feel that way. When, when you look at those trees, you just feel for them, don't you? But we in Christ, like those trees, are, are able to withstand the winds of the sea, the winds of difficulty, because we are grounded in a rock, a solid rock. For us, it's Christ. For them, it's granite or something else. The outcome of our patient, faithful, joyful endurance in the pursuit of, of living faith in Christ is that there's worthy of great reward. And this is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of the gospel in that Jesus Christ sacrificed his life on a cross for us so we might someday be rewarded with eternal life. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James then writes, Let no one say he is tempted. I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers, he writes. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of 
fruits of his creatures. James closes this first section of his letter by telling us that we should not be tempted to say God is the one who has tempted us with evil. Now, it's not difficult to see a connection between temptation and trials, struggles, and adversity. Because in the midst of trials, struggles, and adversity, we may be tempted, probably are tempted, almost always tempted, to think and act in a godly, ungodly, sinful way. And we justify it. We justify it. And we can say, you know, well, if God puts all these things in our life, then it's his fault. God put these adversities in my life. It's his fault that I'm angry right now, and I just did something that's ungodly. Many people wrongly conclude that stress is, justifies ungodly responses. In fact, there's a sinister dimension to saying I'm being tempted with God or God did that. It's something different to say, well, the devil made me do it or one of you did, but God made me do it. James tells us that when we see God as the source of our sin, we are terribly deceived. God is not the source of any temptation or evil because it is God who is the source of of all good gifts, all good gifts that come from heaven. God does not tempt, but he gives good gifts. And you know what? It says he never changes either. There is no variation or shadow due to change. The God who is good and never changes is also sovereign. It was through God's initiative that we were offered and given new life. It says through the word of God, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. If there's any basis for stability in our faith, it's knowing that God is good and God is unchanging and God is sovereign. And then we know in Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work will complete it, will finish it in us in the day of Christ Jesus. And someday God is going to redeem all creation back to himself through Jesus, just as he did with us. Colossians 1 tells us that, that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross reconciles all things, heaven and earth, and us, together with God. The true test of faith is the test of whether we will joyfully embrace all of the trials, struggles, and adversities that God brings, sends, and allows into our lives as good gifts from God. A God who is good, a God who is unchanging, a God who is sovereign over all things in order to give stability to our faith and to build up on our faith so we might live out a living faith through the inworking of God's Spirit which is the perfecting work of God within us, which will not only bless us with his power and his presence and his preeminence as we go through trials, struggles, and adversities, but will also reward us with the crown of life that's waiting for us in heaven. When we pass the true test of faith, brothers and sisters, we will know the fullness of Romans 8.28. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, not ours. And all God's people said, Amen.